Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Hey guys, here's something I hear a lot uh, when I'm giving speeches or when I'm listening to users of the 10% Happier app. People really, really struggle to form an abiding meditation habit. It's incredibly hard. So today we're going to take a deep dive on this, and we're not just going to talk about how to make and sustain a meditation habit, but also about how to make or break any kind of habit, from meditating to going to the gym, sticking to a diet. This stuff is brutal because the truth is we are not wired for success here. There have been a ton of books written on this subject, but there's one that's really stood out. It's become a pretty huge bestseller. It's called Atomic Habits, and it's written by a guy named James Clear, who's got a rather varied resume. He's an MBA, he's an athlete, I think a weightlifter, and also a travel photographer, and he blogs and writes about habits. The term Atomic Habits has to do in part with his belief, which is based in science. He says that the best way to change your habits is to start really, really, really small and easy at the atomic level, and then to layer up from there in ways that can be super powerful. Uh, He is incredibly practical about behavior change, and we're going to get pretty granular and actionable in this interview. So we we talk about best practices for starting a meditation habit. Spoiler alert, he's a big fan of something called the two-minute rule. He's also a big fan of joining a tribe, and he has a trick that involves marbles. Uh, We talk about uh, tips for sleep. He gives me advice for breaking a bad habit I've been struggling with uh, for a long time. We talk about the connection between your self-image and your habits, and we tackle a very common question, how long does it take to form a habit? Two quick notes before we dive in. One, while we do talk about meditation here, it's not the sole focus. We have heard from a lot of you in our uh, from our podcast insiders group that you don't mind it when we have interesting and useful non-meditation-centric guests, but apparently you, you like to have these guests balanced out with a lot of deep meditation folks. So the good news is that next week, we're going to dive into the deep end with a legendary meditation teacher, also a hilarious human being named Sylvia Borstein. The other note, and this is the last thing I say before, I'll say before we get rolling here, you may notice that the audio quality is a little bit different on this interview. We did not record this in a radio studio. We actually shot this as part of a story for Good Morning America. So you're going to hear a tiny bit of background noise on occasion, but the audio is still professional, high quality, yada, yada, yada. All right, here we go. Here's James Clear. So I think it would be interesting to start with just your personal story. How did you get interested in habits? Well, I mean, we all have habits, right? And we're building them all the time. So I had them before I was consciously thinking about them. Uh, but the first time that I started to think about making small improvements and kind of why that matters and makes a difference was through sports. So my dad played professional baseball in the minor leagues with St. Louis Cardinals. So growing up, I wanted to be an athlete too. And uh, sports played a big part throughout my whole childhood. And then when I was a sophomore in high school, I had this very serious injury where I was hit in the face with a baseball bat. And uh, it was an accident. But my classmate took a swing, and the bat kind of spun like helicopter style through the air and struck me right between the eyes. And so it broke my nose, uh, broke the bone behind my nose, which is your ethmoid bone. It's like fairly deep inside your skull. Shattered both eye sockets. Um, I looked down. I had blood all over my clothes. A classmate of mine literally took the shirt off his back and gave that to me for uh, to plug up the, the blood. And 
so I, I walked down to the nurse's office and I was answering questions for like, I don't know, 10 minutes or so, but I wasn't answering them very well. It was like, uh, you know, what year is it? And I said, 1998, it was actually 2002. Or who was the president? And I said, uh, George W. Bush, but it was actually, or I said Bill Clinton, but it was actually George W. Bush. Um, and then they asked what my mom's name was, and I, it took me like 10 seconds to respond, and that was the last question I remember. So over the course of the next day, multiple seizures, um, lost the ability to breathe on my own, had to be intubated, air care to the hospital. Um, I couldn't undergo surgery because uh, the swelling was too severe and I was having too many seizures, so it was too unstable. So they placed me into a medically induced coma overnight. And then finally, the next day, uh, I was stabilized to the point where they could release me from that and kind of this process of healing began. And over the next eight months or so, um, I had double vision, I couldn't drive a car, uh, I was practicing basic motor patterns like walking in a straight line. And all I really wanted to do was get back to playing baseball. And uh, so this was the first period in my life when I was forced to start small, right? Like I had to just build small habits, things that were so tiny that they didn't even really seem significant. Like I started working out for the first time uh, consistently, first one or two days, and then you know maybe three or four. Uh, I made my bed every day, prepared for class for an hour. And none of these things were significant enough that they would like transform your life, but they gave me a sense of control again. You know, I felt like I had lost all that when I got injured. Like I didn't ask for this to happen to me. And so finally, through those small habits, I was able to make some progress. Uh, eventually, uh, the next year I tried to get back on the baseball field, but got cut. I was the only junior to be cut from the team that year. Senior season, I got back and barely got to play, but I did make the team. I weaseled my way onto a college squad. And then uh, freshman year, came off the bench. Sophomore year, I uh, was a starter, junior year was a uh, captain, and then my senior season I was an academic All-American. And so that arc from injury to fulfilling my potential, I guess. You know, I, I never played professionally. Like, I, n- I never ended up playing professionally with my dad. But I do feel like I made the most of what I had, given the challenges that I faced. And I feel like that's really the message of habits and, like, why I care about them so much. You know, like, you can make these small changes. They don't seem like much on any given day. Uh, but... If you can continue to compound them on top of themselves and show up day in and day out, then despite the challenges or drawbacks or barriers that life may throw your way, hopefully you can make the most of, of what you have available. And what's your background? What did you do professionally before you wrote this book? So uh, in school, I was hard sciences. So uh, my undergraduate degree was in biomechanics, which is mostly chemistry and physics. Um, then I went to uh, graduate school and got my MBA. While I was there, I also had kind of more of a health focus and uh, did some um, studies and classes in the School of Health and Public Health and Sciences. Um, And then I got done and I decided I want to start a business. And so uh, the first two years, I launched a variety of different products um, and most of them just flopped and didn't go anywhere. And I realized, oh, the reason this isn't going well is I have no idea why people sign up for things. I don't know why anybody would buy something. Why would they sign up for an email list or whatever? And so I started studying consumer psychology uh, to learn about that, like why would someone buy a product? And that led me to behavioral psychology, habit formation, and I kind of went down the rabbit hole from there. And my my background in the hard sciences really helped a lot. I had done a a research project, um, a year and a half research study in the physics department when I was an undergrad. So I was at least familiar with academic papers and kind of how to dive into some of that stuff. Um, and now, finally, I had found a topic that I was like really interested and passionate in too, because 
I could read that and be like, oh, now I see why, you know, how this idea could apply to my workout habits or my nutrition habits or my creative writing habit or whatever. And so there was suddenly science had this very practical aspect. And that was, that was what I really liked about it. And kind of what I still see my job as being and what like, I feel like this book is, it's like a bridge between the academic research and scientific background and practical daily life and how to apply it to, to life and work. But we, we've had, it's interesting to watch how this book has cut through because there have been books on habit before. I mean, Charles sure. Duhigg and The Power of Habit. Seven Habits High Effect People. It's, yeah, it's, I mean, it's been covered for decades. So what do you think is resonating about this book? Um, I think there are two things. So one, uh, the science has updated and improved and continued to expand. So there are new things to talk about, like some of the topics that are in the book that haven't really been covered elsewhere. Um, connection between identity and self-image and your habits. Uh, the genetic underpinnings of habits and how like your genes and uh, your personality may influence whether you're more likely to be able to stick to a habit or not. Um, and there are a couple other topics as well. Uh, but then the second thing, and I think the more important one, is um, I read all those books and I looked very deeply like what's missing or what do we feel like we need more of and the answer always came back practical application it was how do I okay we understand from a scientific standpoint what a habit is and how it works we have a good idea of what brain regions are involved and so on but how do we actually translate that to something we can use and so that's why the book's organized around the four laws of behavior change and kind of these four major areas you can focus on to make it easier to build a good habit or break a bad one. All right, let's dive in. So let me start with why atomic habits? So I chose the phrase atomic for three reasons. Uh, the first meaning of the word atomic is what you might guess, tiny or small, like an atom. And that's kind of a big part of my philosophy. Habits should be small and easy to do. The second meaning of the word atomic is the fundamental unit in a larger system. So atoms build into molecules, molecules build into compounds, and so on. And your habits are kind of like that. You know, they're kind of like these little units or rituals that you follow each day. And you put them all together, and you end up with the system of your daily routine. And then the third and final meaning is the source of immense energy or power. And I think that if you combine all three of those meanings, you sort of understand the narrative arc of the book, which is you make changes that are small and easy to do. You layer them on top of each other like units in a larger system. And if you do that, then you can end up with some really powerful, remarkable results in the long run. So how does this work? If I want to, well, I'll get, I'll get personal with you. Sure. Uh, I, the habit that I would like to break is late night snacking. Just terrible for me. Uh, it's unnecessary calories. It's sure. not good to eat right before you go to bed. It gives me nightmares. I wake up not feeling that good. And yet I do it. Right. So how would I apply the atomic habits paradigm to something like that? Yeah. So um, let me just recap the those kind of four main stages real quick. Because that gives us like four different points of intervention. So um, my four-step framework for how, what a habit is and how it works is cue, craving, response, reward. So the cue is something that gets your attention. Like you see for late night snacking, maybe see a plate of cookies on the counter. Okay. Then the craving is how you what you predict that cue means, um, and this is a I think an important stage and one of the newer pieces of the book. Um, it helps explain why people have different habits in the same situation. So two people walk into a room and they see a pack of cigarettes on the counter, and one person is a smoker and they interpret that cue as favorable, uh, and they get this urge to smoke. And another person has never smoked a day in their life, and they see it and they're like, oh, it's just a pack of cigarettes, and they move on. 
And it's really the prediction, the internal narrative, the story that you tell yourself about what that cue means that determines whether you respond to it or not. And so the craving is this period of prediction. Um, and actually, to tie it back to some of your work on meditation, I think a lot of the power of meditation is it gets you to either tell a new story about the cues and experiences in your life or gives you enough time to let that craving pass to kind of ride that wave um, so that you can let the story play out without responding to it or without acting on it. But most of the time, you have the cue, you get a craving, and then the third stage, a response. Uh, so eating the cookie, doing one push-up, meditating for one minute. And then finally, there's the reward, which is the outcome. Now, not all behaviors in life are rewarding. Some of them have a consequence. But uh, if it's not rewarding, it's unlikely to become a habit because your brain learns, why would I do that again? It didn't feel good. It wasn't enjoyable. It didn't serve me in some way. So those are the four stages. So let's bring this back to your late night snacking question. Um, if you want to break a bad habit, there are kind of four different points of intervention. And this is also true for building a good habit. So for the first stage, the cue, if you want to build a good habit, you want to make it obvious. And to break a bad habit, you just invert that. So make it invisible. So instead of that plate of cookies being out on the counter, maybe we wrap them up in um, uh, foil or in some kind of uh, Tupperware and put them in the highest shelf uh, in the pantry behind a door. Even better, wrap them in dog poop and then nobody will want to eat it. Or even better, don't buy them in the first place and then they're not there, right? Um, So first step, uh, make it obvious or make it invisible. Second stage, craving, uh, make it attractive. The more attractive and appealing a habit is, the more likely they are to perform it or make it unattractive. Um, I'll come back to an example of that in a second. And then the third stage, make it easy. The easier, more convenient, frictionless your habits are, the less likely, or the more likely you are to do them. And then if you want to invert that for breaking a bad habit, it's make it difficult. And then finally, the fourth stage, make it satisfying or make it unsatisfying. So let me give some practical examples to kind of add some teeth to this. So um, make it attractive, second stage. Let's say that tonight you go to bed and you're like, all right, tomorrow morning's, tomorrow's going to be the day. I'm going to wake up early. And I'm going to go for a run at the park. So you set your alarm, 6 a.m. Uh, 6 a.m. rolls around. Your alarm goes off. Your bed is warm. It's cold outside. Like, well, maybe I'll press snooze instead. But if you rewind the clock and come back to today and you text a friend and you say, hey, can we meet at the park at 6 a.m. and go for a run? Well, now morning rolls around and your alarm goes off. And your bed is still warm, and it's still cold outside, but if you don't get up, then you're a jerk because you leave your friend at the park all alone, right? So you've suddenly made it more attractive to wake up and less attractive to sleep in. So these are kind of two sides of the same coin uh, here. And so um, for many bad habits, this is really hard to do uh, to make it unattractive. So I think the first stage is a better point of intervention, Uh, like keeping cookies outside of the environment is probably an easier thing to do than to say, well, just don't crave a cookie, which is going to be very hard. But you can imagine certain setups where like um, people do this with biting their nails, for example. Uh, They paint a certain type of fingernail polish on there so that it tastes terrible, right? So now suddenly it's very unattractive to bite your nails because it tastes hideous as soon as you put them in your mouth. Um, So uh, that's the second stage. And then the third and fourth stages are make it difficult and make it unsatisfying. And I can give you examples of those if you want, but I'll just pause there for a second. So how would this work? So it's not like I'm eating cookies, just for the record. Sure. I mean, not, not, I used to do that. I actually yeah, broke yeah, yeah. that habit. I had a really horrible sugar habit, and I went cold turkey. Um, 
That doesn't sound like what you would recommend, but for some reason it worked for me. Well, it can work. There are kind of there are three ways to break a bad habit. So, first way is elimination. So, go cold turkey. Second way is reduction. So, you curtail the behavior to the desired level. Uh, and then the third way is substitution. So, you add in a good habit to replace the bad one. And all three can work. It just kind of depends on the situation and uh, what your goals are. I, I at least the story I tell myself is I'm not good at moderation, but I'm pretty good at abstinence. Mm. So I, I couldn't just have a cookie because it would turn into sure. 75 yeah. and a shame spiral. That's how a lot of people are with social media, right? It's like, oh, I'll just check for a minute and then yes. an hour later. Actually, I'm now with social media mindful enough that I recognize pretty quickly that it's making me unhappy and I stop. Mm. Um, but with cookies, I don't have that wherewithal. So I, I quit, you know, full stop. What I'm binging on late at night is usually just something like pretzels or rice cakes or you know something embarrassingly yeah. sort of benign right and nonetheless it it doesn't make me feel good well sometimes it's healthy food but you just don't need the extra calories yes so it's like, yes yeah so i'm i'm unsure because i don't think i could make a case that we shouldn't have healthy f- rice cakes in the apartment uh so i don't know how and, and we do put them away sure they're not just lying around although sometimes they are but Mostly they're not just lying around, mm-hmm. so, but I know they're there. And the cue for me is I'm, you know, uh, once or twice a week I get to hang out with my wife uh, after the kid goes to bed. My schedule is such that I'm not home that often in the evenings because I work on a night, nightly show called Nightline. And, uh, or I'm going to bed early to get up for Good Morning America. But um, once or twice a week we get to hang out and chat or watch Netflix or whatever. Sure. And... Um, I or watch ABC primetime programming, which is awesome. Which is what I meant to say. Um, <laughs> Little plug. There you go. Uh, and somehow that's a powerful cue to me to indulge. Sure. Because historically, that's what we've done. We've had dessert or we've had pizza, right. and now I don't really eat so much of the bad stuff, but I still want that indulgence. Yeah. All right. So let me give you three possible ideas. So um, it sounds like the first two stages are maybe not the best place to intervene for this particular situation. So it's possible that the third stage uh, is a good one. So third stage is the response. You want to, if you want to build a good habit, you make it easy. If you want to break a bad habit, you make it difficult. So what you're really trying to do is add some friction here. All right? So uh, one way to do this, there are uh, Tupperware containers that are programmable on top. And so you can get your rice cakes and store them in the Tupperware in the pantry or wherever. Uh, but you can program them to lock at 7 p.m. Oh, that's and brilliant. not open until, say, 7 a.m. That's diabolical. Um, and so now suddenly it's out of your hands. Can you hack right? them? Uh, I don't know. There are different models, so I'm not sure if some are more airtight than others. Okay. Um, I've actually recommended this some for people with their phones. Like if you feel like, okay, everybody's looking at their phones during dinner, and we just want to have a family dinner for an hour. Well, dinner is started, and everybody sits down. They put their phones in the box. They program it, and it only opens up an hour later. Um, and so you just find a way to take willpower out of the equation a little bit, right? Um, so that's one way to increase friction, and that's with the actual storage of the food. Another option, which I thought was really brilliant, uh, there was one father of mine who's a, or a reader of mine who's a father, and when he puts his young kids to bed at, like, say, 8 or 8.30, um, they are brushing their teeth to get ready for bed, and he brushes his teeth when they do as well. Because he's like, if I've already brushed my teeth, I don't want to have to brush them again. And so that was the thing that helped him cut out the late-night snacking. Um, and I should say, as we're talking through all this, I recommend this all the time. It's not a single 1% change or little habit that is going to like change your whole life. right? It's actually the layering of a few different strategies that might work. So maybe you brush your teeth early 
and you put your food in a programmable container, uh, and you try to not leave uh, food out on the counter so you're less likely to see it. And the combination of all three of those little changes are, is enough to nudge you forward. Um, so those are two strategies. The third one that I can think of um, is maybe substitution is a good, uh, a good method. It sounds like for your type of personality, elimination and going cold turkey makes sense. Curtailing it a little bit, reducing it probably isn't going to work that well. But maybe you could cut it out entirely if you had something else that you did. And so this story of I come home, I get to hang out with my wife at night, uh, and usually we'll snack on something together and watch Netflix or whatever, maybe there's something else you can plug in there that you do together while you're watching Netflix um, that takes the space of uh, eating mindlessly while you're watching. And I don't know exactly what that would be, right? I'm not saying you have to get like a fidget, fidget spinner and you know, <laughs> spend your time doing that. But there could be something uh, that makes sense for your setup or for what's interesting to you. This is going to sound pathetic, but occasionally we will substitute with gum. Yeah. But then I'll chew so much gum that I feel <laughs> crap. I I'm just I have a very powerfully addictive personality. Yeah. I mean, yeah. uh, I've been pretty open about my addictive proclivities. So sure. uh, it, it, it will transfer. I don't do cocaine anymore, but it will transfer over into anything. Right. Uh, I'm actually pretty restricted. I don't eat animal products. I don't eat dessert. Um, but it will, my, the addic- addictive capacity of my mind will find a way. In a weird way... Um, Habits are kind of, I, I, I don't want to use the word addiction because uh, I think actually at that point you're like on a very extreme end of like repetitive behavior. So it's not quite the same as like a lot of other daily habits. But to a certain degree, it's kind of the process of trying to find the healthiest addictions for us to do. You know, like um, certainly exercise, for example. Yes, there are extreme examples of people who exercise four times a day or whatever, and it becomes so uh, prohibitive to the rest of their life that it negatively impacts them like an addiction. But I think it's also true that it's much less likely that exercise spirals into something negative like that than other behaviors like, I don't know, doing math or something, right? Which is probably much more toward uh, an unproductive side of addictive behavior. So if you can channel that energy into something that's less likely to have a negative downside, you kind of get to put your personality to work for you uh, in a better way, even if it's not going to be a perfect solution. I like that. Let's talk about the inverse, because I asked about breaking a habit, and you wisely talked about both sides, breaking and making, but let's just dive in a little bit on making a habit. You you mentioned exercise. The other habit that I'm attuned to and I've heard you discuss publicly before is meditation. Mm -hmm. Those are two of the big things that people talk about to many big things that people talk about when they say, I need to get better at X, Y, or Z. For sure. So let's, let's take meditation since a lot of my listeners are, are into that. Um, how would you, what would you, based on everything you've learned, for those of us who are struggling to establish a meditation habit, what would you recommend? Mm-hmm. I think, uh, so there's sort of, there are kind of two phases when building a habit. There's getting started. Um, and then they're sticking with it, right? So there's like making it easy to get going and having some kind of long-term consistency with the thing. And um, I'll talk first about getting started and making it easy. So I think this, the fastest, simplest way to do this is to apply what I call in the book the two-minute rule. Um, You just take whatever habit you're trying to build and you scale it down to something that takes two minutes or less to do. So do yoga four days a week becomes take out my yoga mat. Or uh, meditate every day for a month becomes meditate for 60 seconds, right? Like you just make it something that's two minutes or less. Very small, very easy, not intimidating. So easy almost that you can't say no to it. Um, And sometimes I tell people this and they like resist it a little bit because they're like, well, 
I know the real thing I want to do is like do the workout. I'm not just trying to take my yoga mat out and then roll it back up and put it back, right? And if I know it's this mental trick, then why would I fall for it? But I think this is a truth about habits that's often overlooked, which is a habit must be established before it can be improved, right? Like you have to make it the standard in your life before you can worry about optimizing or expanding or upgrading from there. And so often we're focused on finding the perfect workout program or the ideal diet plan or the best business idea. And we're so focused on optimizing that we don't give ourselves permission to show up, even if it's just in a small way, you know? And if you don't become the type of person who meditates for 60 seconds, five days a week, you have no chance to be the type of person who meditates for 40 minutes, you know, like you have to, it has to be established before it can be improved. So I think that's the first step is let's just scale it down and make it so easy that you can do it uh, whenever you want. Um, the second thing that you can do is try to carve out the right space for that habit to live. So for most people, uh, the morning is a great place to build a new habit because your day hasn't got going yet. You're not responding to all, you're not putting out fires and responding to everybody else's agenda. But let's say you're the parent of a four-year-old. Well, your four-year-old doesn't care that you're trying to meditate at 7 a.m., right? Like they're just running around, you need to get them dressed and like maybe that's not the right time to do it. And so I think it's worthwhile to sit around and think about where's the best place to insert this habit into my life. Um, And I'll add a caveat to that, an important consideration, which is habits are tied to a particular context. So Uh, let's say, for example, that your living room at 7 p.m. is where you watch Netflix each night. And over time, it's not really the TV or Netflix or any individual thing that is prompting that habit. It's just the context of being in your living room at 7 p.m. And if you say, all right, now it's going to be different. I'm going to start a journaling habit. And so I get home and then I sit down on the couch at 7 p.m. to journal even if you don't consciously say it, you're kind of naturally being pulled toward the remote and watching Netflix. You're kind of fighting these behavioral biases that are tied to that place. And so instead, it might be more useful to say, okay, there's a coffee shop down the block from my office. I never go in there. And now this is going to become the journaling coffee shop. I leave work, I walk in, I turn off my phone, I journal for 10 minutes, and then I get out and continue my commute and go home. And there's nothing tied to that space right now, so it's easier for that blank slate to become tied to this new habit. So for meditation, if you're struggling to build a meditation habit in all of your other current context, at the office or at home or in the car or whatever, it might be because you're fighting against the other habits that are already built there. So maybe uh, the combination of scaling it down and making it really easy and picking a new place where uh, you can make this the meditation room um, those are good ways to uh, build that new habit. So you, you you talked about the difference between the booting up stage of a habit and then the keeping it going right. stage. Uh, because it, uh, on meditation, that's a, a thing I hear a lot. Um, I, I did it for a month and it was great and then I fell off the wagon. Or I did it for six months and it was great and I fell off the wagon. Or, or I did it for years and then I had children and, and it, it, mm. it blew up. What 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 is the wisdom you've been able to glean from your research on that latter part of the habit? Consistency okay. is a huge thing, right? I mean, really, if we're honest about it, getting started each day, that basically is what a habit is, right? Like, if you're able to be consistent with it, that's when it becomes a habit. Otherwise, it's just a behavior you did once or twice. Um, but let me say something on the, the example you just gave of like, oh, I, had, I used to do it, then I had kids, and things changed or whatever, and then I'll give you two kind of practical strategies. 
So I like to think about my life as like happening as a series of seasons, right? And so the question I'm asking myself is like, what season am I in now? Like for me currently, um, I don't have kids yet. So it's kind of a career heavy season and I'm maybe more focused on like personal health. Uh, whereas family and friends, even to a certain degree, are maybe like on back burners. But at some point I will have kids and maybe that'll signal a shift in the season that I'm in. And so I need new habits in this new season. And maybe something, maybe the career burner gets turned down a little bit and the family burner gets turned up. Um, and nobody likes being told this, right? That like life has trade-offs and you have to choose. But I think it's important to remind yourself of it. And I'm the type of person that, you know, I want to be ambitious and I want to try a bunch of different things and it's hard to say no. And so the season's mentality kind of helps me box those things in a little bit better and be like, all right, it's not no forever. It's just no for this season. And then I can pick up uh, those habits in a different season when it makes more sense. So that's just kind of a note on sticking with habits and, you know, when they may transition in and out of your life. But uh, I do think there are kind of two practical strategies you can use for being more consistent. So pretty much any behavior produces multiple outcomes across time, right? Like if you, uh, you have like an immediate outcome and an ultimate outcome. And I think this helps explain why bad habits form so readily and good habits can be such a struggle. Like if you, uh, if you eat a donut, if you take a bite of a donut, the immediate outcome is kind of great. It's like sweet, sugary, tasty, it's enjoyable. It's only the ultimate outcome if you keep doing that for a year or two or five that is unfavorable. And with good habits, it's often the reverse, right? Like the immediate outcome of going to the gym is kind of unfavorable. Yeah, you know, it's like, what's the reward of, for going to the gym for a week? If anything, your body's probably sore, you sweat, you had to sacrifice, you gave up time that you could have spent on something else. It's only once you've gone for a year or two or five that the ultimate outcome is favorable. And so there's sort of, with many habits, there's this like valley of death in the beginning <laughs> where you're doing it and you're like, I've been running for a month, how come I can't see a change in my body? And so you need something to get you through that. And I think that there are kind of two strategies you can use. The first is having some kind of immediate reward, uh, what psychologists call a reinforcement, um, to layer on top of that. So uh, here's one kind of fun way you could do it. I've seen parents do this with their kids as well. Um, so say you get a jar of marbles, and you have 100 marbles in the jar, and 90 are blue and 10 are red. And whenever you do your habit, you meditate for five minutes, say, uh, you get done, you pull a marble out of the jar. And if you pull out one of the 90, nothing happens, just a pat on your back, like, good job, you did what you are supposed to. But if you pull out one of the 10, you get something that's rewarding to you. You know, you get to take a bubble bath or you get an hour of YouTube without feeling guilty about it or you get to take a walk in the woods or buy a leather jacket you were saving for, whatever it is, something that, that excites you. And so what you've done is you've taken this thing that, okay, let's say you've meditated for six days in a row. Do you feel a sense of calm washing over your life? Well, probably not yet, right? Like the long-term rewards probably haven't kicked in. But you have this element of surprise now with this jar of marbles where maybe it's rewarding uh, because of that. So, so that's one strategy. And then the second strategy, and the real long-term one that gets any habit to stick, is social reinforcement. Mm -hmm. Who you're surrounded by, what kind of tribe you're a part of. I would imagine, for example, that after you've written these books on meditation, that now you talk to and are friends with many meditators. Mm -hmm. People are reaching out to you, you're surrounded by them. And whether you consciously think about it or not, there's a lot of social pressure, even if you wouldn't define it as like peer pressure, but in a positive sense, um, that is pushing you toward being a meditator. It's part of your identity. I wrote books on it. I have friends who do it. I'm reminded about it constantly because people are asking me questions about it. And those are all great little elements of social pressure that are nudging you to be consistent in the long run. 
And so I think the, the punchline or the takeaway for that part is you want to join a tribe, join a group where your desired behavior is the normal behavior. Because if it's normal in that group, then it's going to be very attractive and compelling for you to stick with it for the long run. And uh, so those yeah. two things in combination, I think, can be helpful. I, what you're describing on the social, positive social pressures, uh, the description of what you were guessing to be my experience was, is actually my experience, mm. and it's really positive. Uh, but I, I think you can also see the same effect with CrossFit uh, or any any time you're doing a healthy behavior where it's got social reinforcement, where you're part of a tribe, sure. you're held accountable by other people who are expecting you to show up, et cetera, et cetera, it's for some types a massively important component. I think it's actually, so I have a whole chapter, it's chapter eight or nine in the book is on like the power of friends and family and how social environment shapes your habits. But even though I wrote a full chapter on it, I think I undersold the importance of it. Um, and I think actually it's not even for some types. I think it's for all of us, but we just, it's so pervasive that we don't even see how powerful it is. For example, um, you move into a new neighborhood and you walk outside on Tuesday night and you see that your neighbors put their recycling bins out and then you're like, Oh, we need to sign up for recycling. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you stick to that habit for 20 years, mostly because of the social pressure of, I don't want to be the one in the neighborhood who doesn't do what everybody else does. Or why do we trim our lawns and uh, or trim our hedges and mow our lawns? Like, partially, yeah, it feels good to have a tidy yard, but mostly we want to have a tidy yard so we're not judged by our neighbors and peers, right? Like that social pressure nudges you along. Or uh, you know, like right now, I'm sitting here talking to you. I have a, a you know um, jacket on and a button-up shirt. Like, why am I wearing this? Mostly because I know the social expectation is to be dressed this way. There's no reason I have to have this on. Like, I could be wearing a bathing suit. But that would be weird, right? Like it would violate the social norms. And so many of our behaviors are nudged along by the tribes and the groups that we're in. And so if you can be surrounded by people where the expectation is to act that way, you pick up all kinds of habits that are aligned with that. So with my desire to cut down on late night binging, mm. if I could enlist my wife in this effort, I'm much more likely to be successful. I think that's true. Because the hard part about behaviors like that is there isn't much of a tribe because it's just you at your home, right? But you do have other family members. Yeah. And so people talk about this all the time with habits, which is how can I change if my family members don't want to change? Or how do you get a family member to join you in a process? And um, yeah, that can be really tough. And I think one way to do that is a strategy that scientists refer to. The, the shorthand is like, praise the good, ignore the bad. Um, and so anytime that your wife, say, supports you in uh, not late night snacking, she doesn't have anything you don't, it doesn't have to, you don't have to make a big deal about it, but just something small like, oh, I'm really glad that we ate healthy tonight. Or I'm glad that we didn't snack late tonight. You know, something like that. Like, thanks for supporting me in that or whatever. It can just be a little phrase. And everybody likes being praised, uh, right? They, they start to learn that, oh, whenever I do this, I, I get praised. It feels good. I get rewarded for acting in that way. And so I think especially for family relationships and for marriages, that kind of long-term strategy uh, is really compelling. They're actually, um, when I was researching the book, I came across this uh, article in the New York Times where a wife effectively trained her husband to uh, put his dirty clothes in the laundry hamper over the course of like a year and a half by never mentioning it when he didn't do it, but only praising him when he did do it and like giving him a kiss and making a big deal about how like helpful that was. And over the course of a year or two, he learned I should just put it in the laundry <laughs> hamper all the time. Um, it yeah. sounds right. Um, 
Speaking of wives, uh, if your wife was here, what, what, what would she say about the habits you've been successful at making or breaking and, and what habits you need to make or break still? People ask her this all the time, like, oh, is he always like looking over your habits or like questioning about this or whatever? And uh, her response is like, no. And my response is like, I don't want to be that person. You know, like, that, that's not my job. I don't want to, I'm not looking to like judge or whatever. And uh, also, I struggle with this just like everybody else. You know, like I think um, a lot of the times people assume because I write about habits that like, oh, they must be dialed in or something. Um, but my readers and I are peers, right? Like we're working through this together. And so anytime I come across a strategy, I share it because I'm trying to experiment with it in my own life and uh, hopefully it'll be helpful for them too. And uh, my wife and I are the same way. Like she has many things that she does that are more effective habit-wise than what I do. Like... Um, she gets up before me, but every night before she goes to bed, she sets out all the utensils on the counter and like has everything. Her coffee's like preloaded and everything, so that uh, her morning routine of making breakfast is like easier. It's a great example of what I refer to in the book as priming the environment. But I never used that phrase with her, right? She like came up with that on her own. Um, I think uh, I think the nice thing, and this is true for many good relationships, but you start to like bleed over into each other, right? You soak up a little bit of them, they soak up a little bit of you, and I feel like I've probably been able to pull us towards we work out together, and that time has been like, it's been really nice to share that. Uh, it's sure we get the benefits of exercise, but that's like an extra hour that we get with each other, um, which is really nice to have that be uh, the way that we share that hour together. We could do it in a million ways, right? We could just like watch reruns of The Office and sit on the couch. Um, and that's fun too, but uh, I'm glad that it like happens in a, a healthy way or a healthy space. My wife and I have been working out together too, and it's phenomenal. But, but what are you, str- is there anything you're struggling with these oh, days? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So um, one that I've really struggled with for a long time, I don't know, I've tried a couple different strategies. Um, it's not really sleeping. I'm good about making sure that I get enough sleep. It's really what I would call like the power down routine. So I get this kind of second wind around like 9 p.m. where I'm like, oh, maybe I'll just check email for an hour. Maybe I'll work on, you know, something else. And then, of course, it's never just an hour, right? Like I turn around, it's like midnight, and I'm, you know, I'm like, oh, all right. So if I'm up till midnight or 1 and I don't cheat myself on sleep, well, that means I'm not getting up till like 9. And um, I don't feel bad about sleeping that long because I know that that's the more important thing. But I would prefer to be up at like 7 and being more productive. Um, so... Uh, it's really like shutting off late night screen time, not checking email, powering down. Uh, that's been a challenge for me. How are you working with it? Well, so one strategy that... Uh, Lock your phone in, a, in one of the containers I'm about to buy. Similar. So uh, a friend of mine, uh, near a y'all, he wrote another book on habits and technology. It's called Hooked. And uh, he had this interesting strategy. So he bought what's called an outlet timer. You can get it for like 10 bucks on Amazon. And it's like a surge protector. You plug it into the outlet, and then you plug your device into the timer. But the difference is you can set the time that it kills the power from that outlet. So he plugged his internet router in and then set it to turn it off at 10 p.m. each night. 10, 8, 10 p.m. rolls around, can't watch Netflix, can't check email, like time to go to bed. And I bet if you paired that with your internet router with a combination of like putting your phone in a lockbox, uh, that would be a pretty powerful combination. But you haven't done it. I haven't, but I have ordered the outlet timer, okay, so we're getting okay. closer. Yeah, I haven't implemented it yet. So a few um, atoms. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's one strategy. And then there's another question of, uh, around, like, what, 
what aspect of che- like checking late, late at night pulls me in. So like for example, if I find that it's email that I'm usually checking, then it's like, well, the real problem is that you keep checking your inbox then. So maybe there are other steps I can take. Delete Gmail from, from my uh, phone, for example. Um, or uh, I, I did an ex- ex- uh, a version of this when I was writing the book. I got about a year in and I realized this is not going fast enough. Like I'm going to need to be, I'm going to be writing forever if I don't like uh, become more productive. So I noticed that I was spending too much time on social media. So every Monday, my assistant would log me out of Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, reset all the passwords. <laughs> I would work until Friday. She'd send me the passwords. I could log in over the weekend, and then on Monday we'd do it all over again. So I could do some version like that, where every night at 5 p.m. she resets the password to Gmail, and I get locked out, and then she sends it to me in the morning, and I can check again in the morning. What does it say about us as a species that it's so hard for us to do stuff that is patently good for us? Mm. Um, I think it says more about the modern environment uh, than anything else. So, you know, our ancestors grew up in, in what scientists would call an immediate return environment, which means that most of their actions had an immediate payoff for their daily lives. So taking shelter from a storm or running away from a lion or foraging in the berry patch. And in an, envir- in an environment where there's a, an immediate payoff, it makes a lot of sense to be wired for instant gratification or for the path of least resistance. Because if you could get, if you could forage for berries in a patch that was 100 meters away, then it made sense to do that. That was the smart thing rather than going on like the other side of the mountain. You would just be wasting energy. And so uh, throughout the eons, uh, we gradually selected for people who were making choices that prioritize their immediate uh, benefit and outcome. Modern society, however, is what scientists would call a delayed return environment. Because now suddenly we have, and I say suddenly in the sense of history, right? Like compared to say hundreds of thousands of years of evolution, we've got the last say 500 years of modern society. Suddenly we have all sorts of things that require a delayed return. You go to work today, you get your paycheck in two weeks. You go to school today, you graduate in four years. You save for retirement today, you can retire decades from now. And so the choices that pay off for us now require more foresight, more um, delaying of gratification rather than instant gratification. And so I don't think it's, you know, sometimes we like belabor this point and talk about how we're broken or we, you know, like are, uh, you know, these stupid humans that aren't making smart decisions or whatever. But I think it's just like kind of an evolutionary mismatch. We have brains that were wired for paleolithic life and we're kind of walking around with very similar or the same hardware that we had before, but in a completely different environment. And on the whole, humans are really flexible. They're, they're, we're still incre- we're thriving in an incredible way in modern society, but there are plenty of instances where it just doesn't serve us very well. Um, you know, like we, uh, we evolved to be social but not in an environment where you could post a tweet and 10,000 people could respond right away. So it's like, man, that's probably like way too much stimulus. We evolved to um, lust and love and uh, seek, the, uh, seek a partner in life, but probably not in a space where we could like swipe on Tinder and see a thousand of them in an hour. Uh, and so this is sort of the rise of like super normal stimuli modern life has created heightened versions of the reality that we evolved in 
And there's just a mismatch with how we know how to respond to that because we, we don't really know. We're still like learning on the fly. Stay tuned. More of our conversation is on the way after this. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger, never worry alone. Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash happier. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile. Third line free on essentials via monthly bill credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. Welcome back. We continue now our conversation with James Clear, the author of Atomic Habits. Uh, I've heard you ask this before, and I can't remember what the answer is. Is there a set amount of time it takes to form a habit? Because mm. I often tell people, meditate for for five years now since my book came out, I've said to people, if you're interested in meditation, try doing a little bit every day for a month. Yeah. And then hit me on Twitter and tell me I'm a moron if you think it was wrong. Sure. And I've actually, people call me a moron all the time, but never for that. <laughs> so I've had this sense of like, hey, it probably takes around a month to kick in because that's the way it was for me. Yeah, yeah. But is there any science to back up what I'm saying here? So... Um I don't think there's anything wrong with monthly challenges, uh, partially because it gets people moving. You know, same way that I don't really think there's anything wrong with New Year's resolutions. Is it the best way to change your behavior? No, probably not. But if that's the thing that gets you going, then that's fine with me. You know, like whatever it takes to, to take the first step. Um, you hear all kinds of things, 21 days, 30 days, as you mentioned. Um, 66 days is a very common one right now because there was one study that was done, uh, University College in London, that found that on average it was about 66 days to form a habit. But even in that study, the range was quite wide. Like for something simple, like drinking a glass of water at lunch, it might be a few weeks. For something more difficult, like going for a run after work every day, it might be seven or eight months. So the, the range was so big that I don't know 66 where it tells you I anything. Mean, that strikes me as the killer here, which is that every habit will kick, start kicking in to the pleasure uh, systems, of the reward systems of your brain at different times. It's, so meditation may take longer than running. And we just talked about the social environment. Imagine uh, if you're meditating in an environment where nobody else meditates and they think it's weird and they think it's something that only hippies do or whatever. Now, each time you do it, you kind of get made fun of a little mm -hmm. bit. So that's going to feel worse, right? It's going to be hard to stick with it. I Versus 
going to say living in a, a, an environment where you're praised for doing it or where it's seen as normal. Now all of a sudden you want to do it because it feels great every time you do it. So it can be even be the same habit, but the environment changes maybe how fast it or slow it takes for it to stick. So can I conclude that your view is that we don't really know? Uh, yeah, the view is, and it's not even that we don't really know. It's just that it depends so much that I don't know you can pin it down on a number. Um, but I think the other thing to, to point out here is the true answer, the honest answer to how long does it take to build a habit is forever. Because if you stop doing it, it's no longer a habit. And as soon as you realize that, I think you start to understand, oh, what I'm looking for is a sustainable change, a non-threatening change, something that doesn't intimidate me, that I can make part of my new normal, right? That can be, you know, like habits, habits are not really this finish line to be crossed. It's not this sprint that you do for 30 days and then you're done and you're good, you're healthy now. Um, It's a lifestyle to be lived. And if you look at habits as a lifestyle to live, as a new normal to make part of your routine, then I think you understand the importance of like scaling them down and making them easier to stick with for the long run. Do you, we've talked about meditation a lot. Do you meditate? Yeah, so I, uh, I've done it in a variety of different ways over the years, but I've never had a consistent meditation habit. And I'll, I'll define consistent in this case as doing it for a year or more. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had periods where I've done it for a few months, but never for a year straight. Um, and I don't know. It's been interesting to question like why that is. Uh, and for whatever reason, it never feels... Um, important enough to me to stick with it for that long. And I wonder, uh, this is just, I don't have any evidence for this being true. This is just my theory. I wonder if uh, it's because I spend a lot of time in really quiet environments anyway. Most of my day I work in silence and I'm writing. And so I don't feel overstimulated by the end of the day a lot of the time. And so I wonder if I just don't have the, the pang of you know the stress and anxiety and whatever that I feel like I need meditation to curtail that enough. Um, that makes know. sense to me. I mean, if, if, I mean, I think a big motivator to, to meditate is not necessarily just a yearning for quiet, mm-hmm. but, but sure, that's a big one. Calm, quiet, peace, that's a big desire. But also you mentioned you don't have a lot of sort of anxiety generally. Right. That, I think, is a, that tells me something, that you may not be somebody who, you know, I've put at the top of the list of people who need this practice. Yeah. I think it's healthy for everybody, pretty much. Sure. But if you're telling me that, generally speaking, you feel like you're productive and calm and you've got quiet in, in your life and you're not freaking, you don't feel like there's like a perpetual background static of kind of freaking out or wanting, um, then I would, I would still say meditation could be useful for you, but it doesn't seem as urgent. Sure. I, I think that's probably right. I, for whatever reason, uh, my personality kind of feels like I've, I've never been one to like over-worry or ruminate or things like that. Um, I think about strategy in business a lot, so maybe my publisher would say that I uh, overthink things. I don't know. We'll see. But I, um, uh, yeah, I don't, uh, in my personal life, I don't feel that level of stress and anxiety. I think it is possible, I don't do this, but I think it is possible to overthink things without being frantic or anxious. Mm. Oh, here's another interesting element, is uh, maybe I meditate, but in a different way. So, like, I kind of view going to the gym as, like, going to church for me. You know, like, I, um, I can get in this kind of meditative state when I'm working out that uh, that's the release valve for whatever the stress or uh, anxiety I feel throughout, that builds up throughout a particular day. And because I get it there, uh, maybe I don't need to get it elsewhere. I don't know. So I'll give you my shtick on that. Yeah. Um, uh, 
the bottom line is I don't know because I don't know what's going on in your mind. So just yeah, that's sure. the most important thing. Um, but every, so everything else I'll say is kind of second to that. But uh, I think that uh, there's no question in my mind, as somebody who also goes to the gym, that it's really good for you, for you specifically and for one generally. Sure. Uh, but I think it's different from mindfulness meditation. Mm. So mindfulness meditation is the cultivation of a kind of meta-awareness. So the knowing that you know stuff or knowing that you're thinking we, as I often say, are classified as a species as homo sapiens sapiens, right. the one who thinks and knows he or she thinks. And the knowing that you have these thoughts all the time, these random, discursive, mostly negative, always self-referential thoughts, knowing that this is happening allows you not to be owned by them. Mm. And that, I don't think, is generated by most workouts. I would there, agree are, with that. there are ways to do that mm-hmm. through a workout, but mostly, in my experience, workout is a release of endorphins, a release of stress. It's you feel um, uh, um, virtuous, et cetera, et cetera. Lots of good stuff, but not necessarily this this cultivation of what of mindfulness, this meta awareness. I think it releases the stress. It doesn't necessarily drive that level of self awareness yes. that you're referencing. Yes. Um, I'll take us on our own little tangent now. Go. I feel like uh, that knowing that you know, uh, that process, might be the thing that really separates the human species from other animals. Oh, it absolutely is. Because if you, this is like kind of a little bit of a thread on consciousness and what exactly that means, but even if you have like a bacteria and you place a chemotoxin in its environment, it will respond to that, like it'll move away from that. Now, what is that if not being conscious of the toxin, right? Like the bacteria knows that something is there and it must move away, even if it's even if it's at a different level of mental engagement than what we would consider thinking. But does the bacteria know that it knows a toxin is there? And that, I would say, almost certainly no. Um, well, so I would actually say yes to all that and... Most humans don't know that they know. They're yanked around. Mm. We are yanked around by this malevolent puppeteer of our ego, of our discursive thought process. A thought comes into our mind, and like a little dictator, as my meditation teacher likes to say, we just do the thing. Mm. Oh, yeah, I should eat 75 cookies. Or I, oh, yeah, I should say something obnoxious. And we just do it. We just do it. There's no stimu- There's no buffer between the stimulus and our reaction to right. it. It's so and, quick, it's just a response. Yes, Meditation is about building that buffer. Right. And that, for me, has been... I mean, meditation is about many things, but mindfulness meditation, one of the biggest benefits you see quickly is, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm less owned by all of my neurotic obsessions. So humans, similar to the bacteria or other animals or whatever, are often not in that state, but are capable yes. of transcending yes. that state yes. and noticing and stepping outside and above your yes. own mind and seeing how things are working. Um, you mentioned a few things at the beginning of the interview that I wanted to circle back to. Sure. One of them was um, the connection between identity and habits. Yeah. T- talk to me about that. So uh, the word identity comes from the uh, Latin and late Latin words identidem, uh, and it means um, your repeated beingness. So it's the way that you be, the way that you are again and again and again. And I thought that was so fascinating because it's like, well, what is that other than habits? Um, and this got me thinking about this line, this connection between your identity, your self-image, the way that you look at yourself, and your behavior. Because 
you know, when you're born, you're not uh, you're not a total blank slate, right? There are genes, and uh, you know, like your your height, for example, is probably mostly baked in uh, at that point. But it is true that culture pervades uh, our mind to such a degree that most of the things we do and say and pick up uh, are learned throughout life. And so you don't have these internal stories about who you are and what your personality is and what uh, you should be focused on and what your identity is. You learn them over time. And I think the most powerful way that we learn them is through some kind of behavior that provides evidence of being that kind of person. So um, one way to think about this is that uh, every action you take is like a vote for the type of person that you want to become or the type of person that you Mm -hmm. believe that you are. So every morning when you make your bed, you're casting a vote for being someone who is clean and organized. Every time you study biology for 20 minutes on Tuesday night, you're casting a vote for being a studious. Um, every time you go to church, you cast a vote for being religious. And eventually, over time, as you build up these votes of certain aspects of your identity, it's like you have a body of proof, a body of evidence for being that kind of person. And, you know, like, if you go to soccer practice the first day and kick a soccer ball around, you might not think I'm a soccer player. But if you keep doing that for six months or a year or two years, at some point you kind of cross this invisible threshold and you're like, oh, maybe I guess being a soccer player is part of my identity. And so in this way, your habits enforce uh, a certain identity. They, um, they're how you embody a, a particular aspect of your identity. I felt this myself when I was a writer, uh, I didn't look at myself as a writer early on. I just, I wrote, but it wasn't until, really it wasn't until the book was published that I fully accepted it, that I had like this visible proof that it was like, oh, okay, I guess I'm an author now. Um, and it was like once the behavior had been repeated enough to reinforce the identity, that was when I really latched onto it. All right, so why is this important? So identities can either work for you or against you, right? I've mentioned mostly positive ones here. I'm a writer, I'm a meditator, I'm clean and organized. But there are also many negative versions of an identity. Um, I have a sweet tooth. I'm terrible with names. Uh, I am bad at directions. I'm terrible at math. I'm a loser. Like These are stories that people repeat to themselves again and again. I'm guilty of these. And anytime you have a behavior that reinforces that story, then it's like another little vote right? that is cast on that pile and you start to latch onto it. And, and the then reason, there's a sort of a resignation that kicks in. Yeah, ah, yeah. I can't help it. I'm a sweet, this I have a sweet I, tooth. I have a yeah, sweet tooth. Yeah. What can I do about it? Right. And we. It's interesting. The more I hear these little like identity narratives like that, a lot of the time people don't even notice that they're doing it. It's it's like so internalized that they don't even think it's a choice anymore. It's like, oh no, I, that's just who I am. I have a sweet tooth. Um, and so, the natural question, if you buy into that, if you think it's this like two way street between behavior and beliefs, is well, what do we do about it? How can I change my identity then? How can I uh, upgrade and expand my identity, revise it into something that's more powerful? And I think this is where habits come into play because I feel like they're the best method we have for reshaping your identity over time. Because this is going to be a hard process, right? It's kind of like retouching a painting, you know, like you, you're gradually uh, adjusting it. And um, this is a little bit different than what you commonly hear, which is like fake it till you make it. Fake it till you make it is asking you to believe something without having evidence for it, right? Like you, you keep looking at yourself in the mirror and saying, I'm a healthy person, I'm a healthy person, even though you haven't gone to the gym yet or whatever. And I don't think there's necessarily anything wrong with that, that like if you're going to choose to tell yourself a story, sure, choose the positive one. I think that's fine. 
But we have a word for beliefs that don't have evidence. We call it delusion, right? Like at some point, your brain doesn't like this mismatch between who you say that you are and what you're actually doing. But if you flip that around and you let the behavior lead the way and you start with the habit, it's like, well, you do one push-up or you meditate for one minute or whatever. All right, is meditating for one minute enough to transform my identity? No, probably not. But it does cast a vote for being a meditator, right? And so... I think this is one reason why habits, even when they're small enough that they don't make a big difference in the outcomes in your life, they can still be meaningful because they cast a vote for being that kind of person. You know, you like, you get on a plane and you travel for five hours and you get off and you're exhausted and you get to the hotel and all you can do is five push-ups before you collapse on the bed. But at least you were the type of person who didn't miss workouts, right? And like that, so you like cast a vote for being that person that day, even if you didn't transform your body. And I think over the long run, that ends up counting for a lot because there's it's something very different between saying I'm the type of person who wants this and I'm the type of person who is this, right? Once you say I am that, I am a writer, I am a runner, I am a meditator, now it becomes much easier to stick to the habit in the long run because you're, you're not even really pursuing behavior change anymore. You're just like acting in alignment with the type of person that you already believe yourself to be. And I think it requires less motivation at that point. And the, the way to make that happen is to cast those small votes by taking those small actions and little habits. You talk about habit formation as running a race, but it's not about getting to the finish line. It's focusing on the start. Can you expound on that? Well, um, so many of the habits and goals and you know changes that we try to make are outcome focused, right? People always focus on the finish line. I want to double my income. I want to achieve, you know, reduce stress. I want to lose 30 pounds, whatever it is. It's very outcome focused. And I think the point I'm trying to make here is just that uh, instead, optimize for the starting line, not the finish line, right? So, so often we're trying to optimize for this end goal of how can I lose weight, for example, when instead it's like, how can I make it easy uh, to perform workouts. I like the quote, there's this quote by Ed Lattimore where he says the heaviest weight at the gym is the front door. <laughs> and um, it's that idea, right? How can I make it easy to open the front door? And we'll let the scale take care of itself later. But uh, let me just make sure that I make it as easy as possible to show up. How about the shift you talk to from have to to get to? So in college, uh, I played baseball. And my strength and conditioning coach, uh, who was great, Mark Watts, he had this saying where he uh, People will often talk about all the things that are responsibilities in their lives, the things that they have to do. I have to work out today. I have to go to class today. I have to do this segment for work. I have to take my kids to soccer practice. Um, And you can keep all those things the same and static, but just change one word. And instead of saying have to, you get to, right? I get to work out today. I get to take my kids to soccer practice. I get to do this segment for work. Um, And... It's true, you still need to do those things, but it switches them from seeing the, uh, the moments and experiences in your life from obligations to opportunities. Yeah, I mean, I could even see that with changing a diaper. Like, I, I get to do this. I mean, it's hard to have a kid sometimes. We struggle mightily to have a child, and we're, we're lucky to have a spouse that we want to procreate with, et cetera, et cetera. So even something is seemingly As ridiculous as changing and, a diaper. Yes, right. um, yeah, I, I, I buy that. Um, there's something powerful about, this comes back, I think it ties into to meditation as well. We've talked a little bit about you know, creating more space between stimulus and response and that stage in my model being the craving or the prediction stage. 
it helps you tell a different story. It helps you predict something different about what this experience should mean and how I should act because of it. You know, like um, my kid is sick and I have to stay home and take care of them. Well, you also get to stay home and take care of them. And uh, that can mean a whole lot of different things. You know, it can mean that you're role modeling good parenting. It can mean that you're showing them love. It can mean that you're, uh, even if they don't feel that well, that you get a couple extra hours together in your life that you otherwise wouldn't get. And I think just reframing it in that way uh, helps you see the opportunities available in each moment of life rather you're, than the obligation. You're talking about gratitude. Yeah, for sure. Another expression you use is uh, desire initiates, pleasure sustains. So this is, uh, if you can see the, the model that I have mapped out in four stages, you've got the cue or the stimulus, then you have the craving, and then you have the response, and then you have the reward. So we're kind of going around here. So you have the cue, and then there's some kind of desire that drives you to take action, and then it's actually the pleasure, the enjoyment that you get from it that sustains the behavior. So... Um, For example, let's say that you buy a book on Amazon. Well, you go to Amazon, you don't actually buy the book. You can't because you don't have it yet. You don't own it, right? What you buy is the image that the book creates in your mind. You buy your expectation or your desire of what knowledge or what entertainment or whatever is contained in that. Then you actually get it and you read it. And then it's the enjoyment that you get from it that either gets you to purchase another one or buy the next book or read it again or whatever. Um, and this is doubly true if you have some kind of habit that is repeated again and again. Um, you look across the room and you see a donut, and it's not actually the donut that gets you to act. You don't have it yet, but the image that it creates in your mind, the desire of it, gets you to walk over and take a bite, and it's the enjoyment, the pleasure of it that sustains it and gets you to come back again. If you took a bite of a donut and it was terrible, right? if it tasted like... Um, I was going to say an avocado, but you can't use that now because millennials love it. Um, <laughs> a broccoli or something, then you wouldn't want to do it again, right? Um, so uh, the point is that uh, desire motivates you to act. Pleasure reminds you to act again in the future. Before we wrap up, two questions. One is, did I forget to ask anything that I should have asked? Um, let's see. We haven't talked about genes and personality. And oh, habits, yes. This is one of the things you invoked yeah. early that I didn't come back to. So go for it. So um, I haven't seen I, – I should just first preface this by saying I think this is an area that's ripe for scientific exploration. And I haven't seen any other books talk about the connection between genes and personality and habits. I think there's something there. I have a chapter in the book on it. Um, so the most robust measure of personality is what's called the Big Five. And the Big Five measures personality on five different spectrums. Uh, The one that people are most familiar with is introversion on one side, extroversion on another. But there's also other spectrums like agreeableness uh, or conscientiousness or openness to experience and so on. Um, And these five spectrums are each linked to your underlying genetic code. They've been shown to have some connection to your actual genes and, and DNA. Which, by the way, makes sense because the definition of your personality is the characteristics that remain the same from environment to environment. And what remains the same in every environment more than your DNA, right? Like it's being carried around with you everywhere. So, um, all right, so what does this tell us about habits? Well, certain elements of personality, like, for example, people who are high in agreeableness tend to have higher natural levels of oxytocin. And agreeableness is a characteristic that makes you warm and kind and considerate. And you can imagine someone who has that kind of personality 
may be more inclined to performing a habit like writing thank you notes or uh, hosting friends for dinner. And so building certain habits might be easier for them than it is for someone who's low in agreeableness. Uh, similarly, your genetic code or your personality may give you some indication about what your strategy should be. So for example, if you're low in conscientiousness, then uh, that means you're less likely to be orderly and organized. And if you know that you're kind of a spontaneous, freewheeling person, you don't write to-do lists, you're less likely to just remember to do it, then maybe certain strategies like environment design and making sure you're surrounded by the right options could be more powerful for you because then you don't have to just remember to do it. It's right there. It's a path of least resistance. It's easy. Um, and so this is the punchline of that section of the book, which is a lot of the time people don't like to talk about genes because they think, oh, it must mean it's predetermined. And if it's predetermined or if it's destiny, why bother? Like, I guess I don't have any control. But that's actually not what genes tell us at all. Instead, they predispose you to certain things, but they don't predetermine anything. Um, and so the lesson to take away is that genes don't tell you not to work hard because everything is destiny. Instead, they tell you where to work hard on which aspects maybe you need a little bit extra help or on which areas might be your strengths and so you can focus there. And uh, so I think there's a, a powerful connection there for maybe like the strategy that you take and aligning your ambition and the changes you want to make with your ability and what you're naturally inclined to be able to do. This has been great. Um, but the last thing I'd like to ask folks is I have this semi-jokey little section at the end of the podcast called the plug zone. Yeah. Can you just plug everything, your blog, your book, every social media, wherever we can find you? Sure. So um, I think the best follow-up to this is to read Atomic Habits. Uh, so the, the full title is Atomic Habits, an easy and proven way to build good habits and break bad ones. You can find that at AtomicHabits.com. And if you want to check out the rest of my writing or see social media profiles and so on, uh, you can just go to jamesclear.com, uh, click on articles, and you can browse them by topic, or click on books, and you can check out what's there, and uh, links to social and so on are there as well. Awesome. Such a pleasure to meet you. Great. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All righty, back now in the studio. Big thanks to James Clear. I got a lot out of that, actually. And just a quick update in case you're curious. I, I, I have had some pretty good results with the advice he gave me about late-night snacking the, the the thing about brushing my teeth when I'm putting my kid to bed so that I don't eat later, uh, flossing and brushing when my son is doing it so that after he goes to bed and it's eight or nine at night or whatever, after, by the time he's fully asleep, I'm not tempted or I'm not as tempted to eat. That has actually really helped. This The thing of social creating positive social pressure, so having my wife in on it with me has been incredibly helpful, especially the whole idea about praising the good and ignoring the bad. Um, and then another thing that's been really useful for me is just kind of tuning into the benefit. In other words, I see how horrible I feel when I eat late at night and, and just really noticing that powerfully disincentivizes me um, when it comes – when I feel the the urge arise to you know go back at the pretzels the next night. So uh, all right. That's the update and that's uh, our time with James Clear. Let's do some voicemails. Here's number one. Hi, Dan. This is Karina. I'm calling from Phoenix, Arizona, and my question seems kind of silly, but um, I am having a hard time figuring out whether meditation is best in the morning or at night or after work. Um, I keep feeling like in the morning my brain's not into it, and I'm afraid I'll fall asleep, and at night I definitely fall asleep. Um, and then after work, I don't know, it kind of feels 
strange to do it before I get into the whole evening ritual with kids and dinner and stuff. And I guess that's also part of trying to figure out if meditation is what you need to get ready for your day or what you need to recuperate from your day. So I guess it's a twofold question, but I'd love some help with that. I don't know if you've ever encountered it, but I'd love to hear your feedback. Thanks so much. Bye. And this is a great question and perfect a sign of the brilliance of my producers that they picked this to put after the James Clear. So let me let me just echo some of what James said uh, in that interview, which is, first of all, it's really important to look strategically at your schedule to figure out where this is going to work. If if the mornings aren't working for you and the evenings are not working for you, I think you're going to have to find uh, at least experiment with uh, some other uh, times of day. I, I'm you know I, I would probe you a little on this resistance you have to doing it after work but before you launch into the evening routine that actually feels like a pretty rich zone um because i'll speak for myself that that time when i'm finishing my work for the day and then diving into the domestic bliss that is my life i'm being somewhat facetious here i love my home life but of course temper tantrums and cat poop are a daily reality so but actually helping smooth out that transition with a little bit of meditation, and I'm serious about just being a little bit. He has the two-minute rule. My little thing is one minute counts. I think that can be that could be a, a place for you to try. Of course, I don't want you to fight too much against the tide here. If you're really resistant to it and you try it and the resistance doesn't go away, then, then obviously that's not the spot. Another thing to think about would be, I don't know if you drive to work, but when you pull up at the office before you go in, a minute or two in your car. Lunchtime, if you have an office door you can close or if there's a quiet place where you work or, again, going back to the car, one or two minutes there. So those are just a few ideas, but I I think just really taking a panoramic view of your schedule, and it's totally fine if you want to X out the morning and the evening because you're just too sleepy – Fine. But there are, I think, a lot of other targets of opportunity. Think about maybe there's a time in the day when you habitually resort to uh, uh, scrolling mindlessly through Instagram or Facebook. That's a good place where you could do a minute or two of meditation. I'm not saying you can't look at social media. I'm just saying maybe you could take a slight bite out of that time. And then the second part of your question about is is meditation better as something that prepares you for the day or helps you recuperate from the day? Yes, both. It's great for both. But I don't think it's more one or the other. In fact, speaking from just personally, I find that it's it's really not about either of those things. It's about just keeping up a kind of a regular practice so that you're building this muscle of mindfulness. You're building a lot of muscles, mental muscles, mental qualities when you meditate. But for me, the most important has been mindfulness, which is just this simple self-awareness that allows you to not be so yanked around by your emotions. So anger arises. I know I'm angry so that I'm less likely to be owned by it. And for that, the time of day doesn't matter so much. What matters instead is that you're doing it regularly at some point. And so for me, I do it at different times of the day all the time, but I do it regularly enough so that my mindfulness quotient is constantly improving. That is not to say I'm perfect. I am imperfect in many, many ways. We don't have enough time to list them. But over time, you can keep 
getting better at this mindfulness thing, among other things like gratitude, compassion, self-compassion, focus. I could, I could go on. Uh, all right, Karina, thank you for that question. I hope that helped. Let's do voicemail number two. Hey, Dan. This is Patrick calling from Los Angeles. I want to first say thanks for your podcast and your app. Um, it's really helped me deal with a lot of uh, anxiety and trying to kind of calm my my mind um, and uh, enhance performance and, and focus. Um, and so my first question is I seem to be good at getting in the habit um, <clears throat> when I'm feeling anxious or down or things are out of place and I start meditating, I start feeling better, more focused and centered, and then things seem to feel better and get better in my life. And then that's when I tend to fall off the wagon when things are good. Um, And I'm sure this is a common occurrence. And so could you just maybe speak a little bit to that um, and how to maybe overcome that and keep with the consistency and um, just with the consistency of of meditating after things are good um, or getting better. And then I have a second question. Um, I was listening to your conversation with Daniel Ingram, and I was having the thought um, when you're trying to observe your thoughts behind the waterfall and allowing them to arise and um, pass, and then just feeling them as sensations, um, it seems almost that there's no possible way, because when you're seeing these sensations arise and fall behind the waterfall, there's still that thing, being, entity, person, um, identity behind the waterfall that's watching it. Um, And I know Daniel kind of touched on this, but maybe a little more elaboration um, about does that person, being, entity melt away? Hope that makes sense. Thanks for everything you do, Dan. Appreciate it. All right, so that's there's there's a lot to that question. Uh, uh, this is one of these rare times where I didn't actually know the questions before. I just for a variety of logistical reasons, I didn't get the questions in advance this time, so I I was not prepared for the uh, enormous but actually really awesome complexity of that question. So let me just tackle this simple simpler part first, um, which had to do with the fact that your meditation habit, and this is you were right, super common. You, you meditate when things are tough and then things are going well for you and you stop meditating. So shaming you, lecturing you, wagging my finger at you is not going to work. It's just going to make you feel guilty but probably not help you on the habit formation part. So I'll tell you what works for me is to notice the pain and then notice the pleasure. In other words, co-opt the pleasure centers of your brain and the pain centers of your brain because that's a really good way – we do things because we get a result and that's a really good way to kind of get you moving and motivated. So when I say noticing the pain, noticing how bad it feels when you come out of one of these happy periods of your life where things externally are going really well, but you're not meditating. And then you get into a bumpy phase and you notice like how much worse it is Uh, how much uh, your inner weather is stormier and your inner voice is obnoxious and louder and more prominent. Just tune into that. And I think that can provide a nice incentive to not allowing that to happen again. And on the flip side, 
it's really important, I think, to, to tune into the pleasure of the act of meditation itself. Because you're, if all you're seeing is, oh, wow, I, I, uh, when I meditate, uh, the anxiety, the volume of my anxiety gets turned down, and I'm not so owned by it, and that's amazing, and you definitely should tune into it. But when you can also tune into the, just the fact that taking a few minutes to sit there and you have no job other than to sit there and to watch your breath or watch whatever your, you know, whatever your object of meditation is, you have nothing to do, nowhere to go, and you can feel the, as my friend Jeff Warren says, the sort of raw animal pleasure of just sitting there in your body, feeling the breath coming in and going out. That in and of itself can be pleasurable. And tuning into that can provide you another incentive that is way better than beating yourself up or having me beat you up. Yeah, and the final thing to know is, which we've said a bunch during the course of this conversation, is this is hard. Habit formation is incredibly hard. And just knowing that can aerate the whole thing, can lighten, uh, can can bring some light into the situation and, and lighten you up as you go through this process of trying to create an abiding habit, knowing that, that we all struggle with this. You're not alone here and it's totally normal and that you, you you can just hop on the on the wagon anytime you fall off and, and nothing's been lost. All right, second part of your question. I think what you're asking is, okay, if you're behind the waterfall, in other words, um, the waterfall, for those of you who haven't heard this before, is a common analogy used to describe mindfulness. So if you think about the mind as a waterfall, the water is our nonstop stream of consciousness, mostly me, me, me thoughts. Mindfulness is like, in this analogy, the crevice in the rock face behind the waterfall. So it allows you to step out of the stream and to view all of your passing thoughts and urges and emotions with some distance, with some non-judgmental remove. And what I think you are asking, what I think you're driving at, Patrick, is if there's somebody viewing the thoughts and urges and emotions from behind the waterfall, well, isn't that also a self? Um, because one of the things we talk about in meditation a lot is that over time, you may start to get glimpses of the fact that the self, this autobiographical self, this sense of a watcher, a doer, a knower, can we can start to – there can be chinks in the armor there. And that's a really interesting um, and actually very healing and helpful thing to see. So isn't there – so if you're watching – if you, quote unquote, uh, are watching your thoughts and urges and emotions from behind the waterfall, well, isn't that just another you? Uh, yes, in some ways it, it is. But it, what it, <laughs> that question is so excellent because you can see – in and of itself starts to raise a whole bunch of doubt about where is the you and how solid is this self anyway. And if I feel like me when I'm thinking or I'm having an emotion, and I also feel like I'm me when I'm looking at my thoughts and emotions, so where is the me? Exactly. Exactly. And it is in the looking and the not finding, as teachers will tell you, that something really important can be learned, which is that Again, this solid sense of a separate ego, a little chunk of you located somewhere behind your eyes is an illusion that we re-up all the time. And starting to see through that can be really beneficial because then you're not taking every neurotic obsession, 
that uh, knocks around your mind as being you, as being so personal. You can start to see it with some distance. So, yeah, this the, the very fact that you're asking this question, I think, is another step on this kind of slow progression that, that at least I've gone through toward having uh, a better sense of of this illusion of a self. And it's an illusion that, of course, we need. You know, you need a Patrick. You need a sense of Patrick in order to, you know, put your pants on and make a dentist dentist appointment and blah, blah, blah. But also on some really important, deeper level, there is nothing there. And my experience, the process of getting deeper and deeper into meditation is to kind of hold those two ideas, which are sometimes referred to as relative reality and ultimate reality. Sounds a little like, as I've said before, like (laughs) the kind of names you would give to a high school punk band, but relative reality and and ultimate reality, to hold them together and to sort of live your life kind of sometimes toggling between the two is very interesting. And um, and again, I think quite useful psychologically because, just one more time, if you have a sense of the illusion of the self, one of the benefits is anger doesn't feel so much like Patrick's anger. This is mine. This is my story. I'm never going to let it go. It just feels like an impersonal storm moving through, and then you're much less owned by it. I know I say this a lot, but I hope that answer was helpful. I'm doing my best here, and today I am, unlike usually um, in recent um, episodes, I'm actually ad-libbing these answers. So Um, thank you, Patrick. Thank you, Karina, for the questions. Thank you uh, to the producers of the show. Uh, Ryan Kessler, who runs the show, and then also Samuel Johns and Grace Livingston from the Tempers and Happier Company, who do a ton of work here. Mike D., who's working the boards in the uh, uh, control room today as I record this. Thank you to you, and thank you to the Podcast Insiders Group, who give us so much useful feedback, and thank you to everybody who listens. We'll be back next week with Sylvia Borstein, who is incredibly smart and funny. Peace. If you like 10% Happier... I hope you do. Uh, You can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books. Once upon a beat. Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. 
Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat.